So I, I guess one of the most major pieces of work I've done um, was uh, working out um, with a colleague of mine at Imperial College, Jenny Collier, working out how Britain became an island. And for this, we, we did surveys uh -huh. in the English Channel, sonar surveys. Right. Um, and we discovered this really bizarre landscape uh -huh. under the sea. Right. And it turned out that those landscapes were very, very similar to landscapes on Mars. Uh -huh. Welcome. AstroTalk UK is a not-for-profit podcast on astronomy, science and spaceflight. Launched in 2008, it's produced by me, Gurubir Singh, a writer based in the UK. I produce this podcast for my own education, but frankly, it allows me to meet fascinating people doing interesting things. It's primarily for my own education, and I share it as a free educational resource. No ads, no subscriptions, and you don't need to log in. For more, see the About page on astrotalkuk.org. Episode 102, Martian Geology with Professor Sanjeev Gupta. In 1972, Harrison Schmidt became the first and so far only scientist to walk on the surface of the moon. As a practicing geologist, he brought a scientific perspective to understanding lunar geology. Since then, many scientists have brought their scientific insights to understanding the surface of comets, asteroids, the planets in the solar system, and their moons. Professor Sanjeev Gupta is amongst the geologists helping to understand the Martian surface today. Not from field trips to the Martian surface, but from data returned by Martian landers, rovers and orbiters. In this interview, recorded in July during COSPAR 2022, he describes his journey from revealing how the United Kingdom first became an island to making sense of the Martian geology. Um, Professor Sanjeev Gupta, um, you are a geologist by profession, but now you're looking at the geology on Mars. How did that transition happen? Uh, a series, yes, I'm an Earth geologist, uh, and what I do is I study landforms on Earth, mm -hmm. and I also look at rocks, particularly sedimentary rocks, and I try to reconstruct um, how the Earth's surface has changed through time, basically, mm -hmm. um, through cycles of sea level change, climate, etc., and you re try and reconstruct that. So it's a little bit like being a detective, that you look at rocks and try and piece that together. Um, and my trans transition to space science and Mars was uh, a series of uh, serendipitous um, activities. So I, I guess one of the most major pieces of work I've done um, was uh, working out um, with a colleague of mine at Imperial College, Jenny Collier, working out how Britain became an island. And for this, we, we did surveys uh -huh. in the English Channel, sonar surveys. Right. Um, and we discovered this really bizarre landscape uh -huh. under the sea. Right. And it turned out that those landscapes were very, very similar to landscapes on Mars. Uh -huh. Um, and formed by huge floods. So we have these things on Mars called mm -hmm. the outflow channels, mm -hmm. and they were interpreted from the Viking uh, orbiter images to be due to huge floods on Mars. Um, 
uh, about you know three billion years ago, something like that. Um, and at that stage, I knew nothing about Mars, but I ha accidentally came across some images of these features, and they looked exactly like the features that we see under the sea in the English Channel. Um, and so, actually, uh, our paper then we worked up was that actually Britain became separated from uh, the European continent mm -hmm. by a huge series of mega floods, um, which carved the same sort of landforms. And then that, that sort of led, led me becoming interested in in Mars. Um, and then the other thing that happened was that at that stage my children were quite young, and mm -hmm. it was very difficult to go away and do field. So, I'm, you know, geologists go off into the wild, remote. Deserts and mountains to do field work, um, and um, I was kind of like I was watching some of my peers, you know, some of my colleagues, you know, being able to do that, and I just couldn't do that because I couldn't get away for more than a few days uh -huh. because of childcare. And I was at a conference uh, with a colleague who's actually here, also at Coast Bar, um, and um, he had a poster next to mine, and he's he's a, uh, a physicist, an engineer who makes images of Mars using, you know, 3D images of Mars using, uh, you know, he's a technology expert, you know, image analysis expert. And um, so he had a post on how to make these images and data, 3D data, and I know how to interpret them. So we got on really well and we just sort of joined forces and um, that was my entry point into Mars. How long ago was it that you did your work that I'm guessing that answered the question on how and when Britain became an island. So our first work on that was published in 2007, so we've been working on that from about 2002 to 2007, and then we had a paper, big paper in 2007. And then I would say that half half the community didn't believe us because you know it was it was high you know these were the first images of it was like looking at another planetary landscape. There was the first images of what the seabed look like under the sea when you take the water away from sonar data. Um, and then subsequently we started work on more detailed analysis which was quite hard and we had a, another paper in publication in 2017. Um, in fact it was quite amusing that our paper was actually published just the week before article 50. <laughs> Oh. of the Brexit thing. Oh dear. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we actually called it Brexit 1-0 <laughs> because it was the geological Brexit. Right, like. yeah. Oh, um, fascinating. So, and that literally yeah. is, yeah, yeah, physical Brexit. So, you know, actually without that event, mm -hmm. without that chance geological event, uh, Britain mm -hmm. would actually still be attached to the continent. There would be no seaway there. Uh, that's an astonishing coincidence. But what's remarkable for me is how recent your work has um, generated this new information. The yeah. fact that this is how Britain became an island. Yeah, we didn't know before. So people just assumed, we sort of almost assumed that it was just a l slow erosional process. Right. And I know you said that you're really analyzing sonar data off the English Channel that yeah. led to this uh, revelation. So as a geologist, I'm sure you are no strangers to very strange and unusual places in, on the world where you go for your field, field work. But for this activity on the English Channel, uh, or indeed elsewhere, do you actually go on uh, scuba diving and look at... Uh, oh, no, no. So that was uh, sonar data collected. Right. <laughs> um, 
from a small boat. So a small part of the data was collected from a small boat uh -huh. for the project we had, but actually a large part of the data, uh -huh. and the key data, was actually archive data that had been collected by the government for civil safety at sea, but they hadn't sort of put it all together. And, you know, it wasn't interpreted as a, for geology, basically. So it was all about, you know, civil safety at sea rather than scientific. And so we found a scientific use for the data. It's, and it's extraordinary data. Yes, a little bit like um, all decades ago when petroleum companies were scanning the seabeds in the oceans. Right. And then later that data was used to understand plate tectonics yeah. to some extent. Um, so, it's, so you found a collaborator <clears throat> who was... Um, specializing in digital imaging and uh, you could uh, of, of, of Mars do you as a geologist work on the large scale the sort of um, uh, hundreds and thousands of kilometer scale or do you look at through, uh, some micro uh, some geologists do at the through microscope at the little uh, makeup of the minerals and uh, grains of sand that tell you something about how so I, I, I work across all scales right. uh, and um, I guess what I would say is that I'm I'm not an expert in one specific area. I tend to sort of right. jump around and explore different arenas. Um, and um, I was worried about that a little bit because that means you're, you're not a specific expert in something. But by being able to jump around and move fields mm -hmm. and look at things at a range of scales, that gives you a an ability to actually have a big picture view. So I'm quite interested in the big picture view. Mm. I like big, big ideas, etc. Right. You need the small scale huh. to test your ideas. Mm -hmm. But if you just focus on the small scale, you actually miss, you can easily miss the big picture. So I think you have to transcend across scales. And that's been the story of science. And yeah. indeed, COSPAR, this multidisciplinary approach, is what really delivers results in many, many instances. Yeah, yeah and all my research is multidisciplinary, you know, mm. crosses boundaries, etc. And that's what's exciting. And how did you first, uh, and what uh, specific activity um, are you working with uh, with NASA and particularly the rovers there? Okay, so um, I, when I got interested in Mars, and we were working on a particular site on Mars, mm -hmm. and um, somebody who was visiting my university said, oh, you do realize that that's one of the proposed landing sites for Curiosity. Actually, I didn't know anything about Curiosity rover at that stage. Right. So I actually went to one of these, uh, several of these landing site workshops, uh -huh. and um, because my expertise is in from Earth, is working on how we recognise mm -hmm. ancient river deposits and ancient deltas, mm -hmm. which is what people look for right. for habitability on Mars. Uh -huh. um, I was quite sort of outspoken about this at this meeting, etc., and, and gave talks and right. about my experience from the terrestrial. Uh -huh. Um, research mm -hmm. and um, there was obviously a, there was a competition for people to join the rover team so I, I you know I wrote a proposal uh -huh. and I was accepted so I was able to join the curiosity team mm. yeah. so and that curiosity landed in 2012 that's right so it's almost 10 years now yeah, yeah. in a month's time <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think it's August the 5th. Uh, so when it, um, prior to it landing in, in 2012, how long had you been involved in, presumably, in selecting the landing position as well? So I'd been, I guess I'd been involved for about two years, Before in um, uh -huh. one to two years in going to some of these workshops and giving talks about. So I, I didn't propose Gale Crater, which is where right. I was proposing another site, Eberswaldi. We've never managed to get to my landing site. <laughs> <Right. laughs> yeah. 
And from the data that now almost a decade old uh, data, what kind of um, geological um, revelations um, have come out of that data? From so, so um, Curiosity's exploration of Gale Crater has just been, uh, you know, just changed our understanding of Mars. Um, what Curiosity has shown is that Mars in its ancient past, three and a half billion years ago, was a habitable environment. It's a place where, you know, there was water at the surface on Mars and it was persistent, it lasted for hundreds of thousands if not millions of years. Mm -hmm. um, we had ancient lakes and rivers and um, this tells us that it was an environment that life, if it ever was ever there, could have developed and um, evolved in. Right. So your geo geologist eye tells you that in the past there was water there. Yeah, so when you look at the landscapes, mm -hmm. you know, we look at those beautiful images that mm -hmm. we have and you see these landscapes, mm -hmm. and that's what I'll be talking about on Friday here, mm -hmm. is that you see this um, beautiful desert landscape that's really arid, hyper-arid and hyper-cold, mm -hmm. but within the rocks mm -hmm. exposed on the ground, mm -hmm. um, when you look at the rocks, there are telltale signatures, right. clues, if you like, yeah. to a watery past. Right. And that cannot be explained by this just forming in a desert environment. Right. And you're referring to those uh, sedimentary layers That's right. and the small pebbles which have been yeah. rounded through yeah. watering. And they are stunning images. It's incredible. I know, the cameras are just extraordinary. Yeah. And, and it just, I mean, sometimes I forget that it's another planet. It looks so much like some parts of the Earth. It's just yeah, I, I forget this because I look at these images every day. So it's, <laughs> it's, it becomes a day job and yeah. you forget actually you're looking at pictures from another planet. And yeah. So if you, as a geologist, are looking at a large scale, um, I guess most of the data that you would be using um, in your investigations is from orbiters. What kind of insight do uh, landers and rovers provide you as a geologist? So there's a huge scale difference basically. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the highest resolution we can see on from orbiters, uh, for example, with the high-rise camera mm -hmm. on Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, um, you know, we could see, probably see this table this right. large table over here that's several meters right. um, across um, but you know the real details for geologists are at that sub meter meter to sub meter scale right. and um, the detailed textures in the rocks etc which are really the clues right. and in terms of um, uh, that's curiosity are you working with data from perseverance as well yeah, so I'm on the Perseverance rover team also, right. and, and actually for both missions I also do a lot of operations, right. so it's not just science analysis, I do, um, I'm what's called a long-term planner, and there's a small group of people who uh, work with project management mm -hmm. and, and the chief scientists of the missions in, you know, obviously these teams are huge, so how do you actually make decisions, etc. So we work in help helping the science team come to right. decisions about what we're going to do, right. what experiments we want to do, where we want to go to, mm -hmm. um, what the results mean, coming right. to some sort of consensus view. And in terms of the long-term plan, um, what can we look forward to that uh, you might know about that uh, will be uh, coming to our screens in the near future? Or 
Yeah, so both, mich both missions, both the Curiosity mission and the Perseverance, are just really exciting at the moment. It's, uh, it's quite hard working on two missions, yeah. so. <laughs> but it's really exciting. So um, Curiosity is exploring mm -hmm. a transition in the rocks that go from rocks laid down in very wet conditions that mm -hmm. have um, a lot of clay minerals, mm -hmm. and then we see this chemical transition into rocks bearing sulfates, sulfate minerals, which are less... Um, water bearing uh -huh. and there seems to be some sort of and it seems to be a drying out basically mm -hmm. and the sulfate bearing rocks have signatures of um, deposition by wind right. so rocks formed by part, sedimentary particles formed by wind but we still see some signatures of water mm -hmm. in there so there seems to be some climate transition uh, that's being recorded in those rocks. Climate, yeah. climate change on Mars. Yes, climate change on Mars, ah. um, which is really ex exciting. So that's upcoming to see what actually happens right. with that thing. Yeah. And we're just traversing through beautiful terrain. It's uh -huh. really amazing. The images are just gorgeous. <laughs> and then, sorry. So in terms of the chemical compositions, um, there's been a lot of evidence for a long time about the conditions for life in the past being present, have any organic um, chemicals been detected? Yeah, so uh, Curiosity has um, discovered organic matter, mm -hmm. so complex, uh, sort of moderately complex right. uh, sulfur-bearing uh -huh. organic compounds. Uh, drilled, they've recovered these from uh, mudstones mm -hmm. that were formed in an ancient lake mm -hmm. three and a half billion years ago. It's amazing that we can actually even detect that. Right. And that speaks to... Um, so the organics don't mean life because they could have been formed abiotically. Yeah. Uh, um, the team think that they were likely delivered by meteorites uh -huh. to the Martian surface. Right. But the fact that we can mm. discover them uh -huh. and detect them, it's amazing. And then now what Perseverance is doing, so the Perseverance is now just exploring this beautiful delta that formed in an ancient crater lake mm -hmm. at its landing site, Jezero Crater. Mm -hmm. And we're just starting to explore the basal rocks, the delta rocks, again looking for fine-grained deposits that might contain organics. And the delta at Gale Crater is where really uh, the most interesting part from a um, bio, uh, biology point of view, potentially. Um, is that? Well, the trouble is we don't really know yeah. <laughs> where we would find life on Mars yeah, and what it right. would look like, so I think uh, it's difficult to say that, but right. using our Earth examples, mm -hmm. Yes, right. but we don't know. So, for example, um, we're going to spend the next couple of uh, year or so exploring the delta, and then we'll go out and explore the rim of the crater, and there's also these carbonate-bearing rocks mm -hmm. in Jezero. And you, the reason that Jezero was chosen is there's a diversity of rock types, mm -hmm. and right. so you can't put all your eggs in one basket, as the phrase <laughs> says, so you don't know. And, and uh, Perseverance, of course, uh, carried with it ingenuity, this small yeah. helicopter. Has that uh, informed anything to do with Martian geology in any way? So I think uh, ingenuity is really a technology demonstrator. They want to demonstrate that it could get powered flight mm -hmm. um, on Mars in this thin atmosphere. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the future in some ways of... Um, so, for example, when I do fieldwork on Earth, I routinely use drones just to get a different perspective uh -huh. on the rock. So we use the images that Perseverance, uh, that Ingenuity takes mm -hmm. to get a different perspective, right. etc. But it's early days yet for right. this. But, but it's, I mean, the kind of um, uh, point of view 
you can get from yeah. the annuity is very unique and yeah. for the first time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, early days, as you said, but it's been remarkably successful. Yeah. <laughs> and it's still going strong, of course. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of any um, outstanding um, revelations, of uh, the Marge, Martian geology. Is there anything you can point to that uh, is it's a recent uh, discovery? So I guess the most exciting uh, research results from other missions has been the um, InSight mission, oh. which has detected Mars quakes, so, mm-hmm. and it told us something about the subsurface of mm-hmm. Mars. Mm-hmm. And that's really fascinating and exciting. So it's the first geophysics right. uh, yeah. uh, mission to Mars. Yeah. And I think we've learnt about the deep structure of Mars, mm. um, which is, you know, again, a game changer. And then um, we've had a couple of orbiter missions, mm. which are looking at the atmosphere mm. of Mars, right. um, both uh, the Tracegress Orbiter uh-huh. from Europe and MAVEN, uh-huh. and they're telling us a lot about atmospheric processes and atmospheric chemistry. Right. You know, obviously, TJ is looking for methane. Uh, um, and so that's it's not something I know very much about, but it's quite exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an amazing time for planetary exploration at the moment. And, and you mentioned methane. That was one of the early, going, going back quite a few years now, when methane was detected. Um, uh, early on, and it seems to vary seasonally with, uh, on Mars. Um, there's two sources of methane. One could be biological, the other one is uh, uh, geological in some sense. So uh, have you been um, focusing on that aspect of the, if it's a geological source, where the methane so I think the, from? It's not something I do, but I think right. the science team for curiosity, right. the people who work on that have been trying to think about mechanisms, right. because the thing is that... Um, so curiosity is detecting uh-huh. a transient methane signature, right. um, but TGO uh-huh. uh, d- doesn't detect that, and they do you know joint experiments, etc. So this it's a bit of a conundrum, basically. Um, it may be that um, the methane is seeping up from deep underground mm-hmm. through fractures, mm-hmm. but because curiosity is at the surface, right. it sees that, but then. It, TGO doesn't see that in the upper atmosphere, etc. So it's, 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 it's quite TG, bizarre. Yeah, the TGO is the trace gas orbiter that's in right. the European orbiter yeah. mission. And, and that's why, quite interesting. That's why you need that combination of yeah. uh, on-the-surface um, measurements as well as from orbit. The scale of these things is yeah. so dynamic. Um, currently, um, so as you're saying, we've got these um, missions on Mars already. Are you... Uh, involved with? Are you aware of what's going to happen next in terms of exploring Mars? So we have two big things. So firstly, sadly, of course, we were supposed to have the European mm-hmm. Rosalind Franklin rover uh, launching this year, mm-hmm. and that was delayed uh, because of the crisis in Ukraine. And um, hopefully it's going to go later mm-hmm. this decade maybe 2028 oh, it's still an amazing mission yeah. so we hope that we'll succeed right. and can go and land and mm-hmm. it's doing something very different to Perseverance Perseverance is obviously collecting yeah. samples that mm-hmm. will be returned by a future mission I'll talk about but um, yeah so we hope that you know um, ExoMars the Rosalind Franklin rover can go mm-hmm. 
and the other big thing that's happening that Perseverance is the first stage of is Mars sample return. Oh yeah. So scientists really want samples to analyze in Earth laboratories. Whilst we can do wonderful things on rovers, mm -hmm. it's really until you get them into Earth laboratories that you know it's going to be quite extraordinary. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're collecting samples and I think we've collected 10 samples thus far. Oh, I see. Uh, and right. we will be... Um, um, the subsequent mission is going to um, land on Mars, mm -hmm. retrieve the samples, put them into Mars orbit, perhaps around 2028, 2029. Mm -hmm. And then in 2033, oh, yeah. there'll be a subsequent mission that retrieves those samples and brings them back to Earth. It's long-winded, uh, but uh, yeah. it's one way of getting... Uh, it's not an easy task to... No, to, to, not. To, to sort, not, not an easy problem. And there's a whole set of talks tomorrow on that here. Just going back to the um, ExoMars, the Rosalind Franklin rover that's uh, not, uh, not going to go this year as planned. As um, an academic, as a scientist, you've been working on many projects uh, in the past. I was um, very touched by the kind of impact that that cancellation of the launch of ExoMars had uh, for the people who've been working on that mission for years. What's the experience, the feeling within the um, academic community or the engineers and scientists who are working on that mission for such a long time? Because it must be it's extremely disheartening. Yeah, it's very sad, um, particularly for the people who've really you know, spent many years yeah. designing designing the rover, designing the instruments, mm. building it. And obviously, you know, some people have been working on it for many years and will not necessarily, you know, yeah. they might be retired by the time that yeah. um, mm. ExoMars actually lands. So, yeah, I feel for them, but obviously, from my perspective, the political situation yeah. is yeah. so grave that we can't think about science at the moment, you know. And just and we, we just hope that yeah. you know, politically it resolves yeah. and, you know. And we are here at COSPAR. One of the uh, uh, interesting aspects of COSPAR is it was set up during the days of the Cold War. There are people here from all over the world, all the countries. And uh, on Mars, um, right now, we have uh, an orbiter from the United Arab Emirates and, and from India, uh, China. China has a rover there as well. Uh, do you interact with other space agencies uh, around the world in any way? I don't really. I think my time just goes, it's so busy with just working with the science teams of the two rovers. Right. Um, yeah, but it's, it's exciting to see yeah. You know, other other nations. You know, it, Mars doesn't belong to NASA or ESA. It, you know, it doesn't belong to anybody. It's you know, it's it's for humanity to explore carefully. Mm. And I would say carefully. We must explore it carefully. Uh, and that's another aspect of COSPAR. They have these uh, planetary protection rules in place. Is that something that you get involved in, or you, as a geologist, you, in terms of forward planning for future missions? Um, keeping Earth um, contaminants away from Mars is such an important aspect. Yes, yeah, so that's a really major thing, and right. that, that's not something that I'm mm. um, directly have expertise in. But you know, we're, we're aware of this, etc. And um, and then finally, for the next two or three years, do you, do you know what kind of uh, specific aspects of Martian uh, geology you'll be looking at? So I actually I spent split my time. So mm. I do half. Uh, Mars work and half 
terrestrial work. Oh, I see. Um, right. So, um, so I'll be working on results from these two rovers for the next couple of years, both right. curiosity and perseverance. Um, as we ex with perseverance, as we explore the delta, and um, with curiosity, we're going to transition from what I was talking about, the sulfate unit, into some more interesting, maybe water deposited units. So that's going to be quite exciting. Mm -hmm. But actually. On the other side, I actually work in environmental sciences as well, and I think I'm quite broad, and I think that's quite important to keep a broad framework. So uh, a big part of my research in the last 10 years has actually been looking at um, water issues mm -hmm. in India. Oh. Um, so I work on groundwater uh -huh. in India, right. and um, which is a very serious issue. Right. So we use satellite data, but also on-ground mm -hmm. uh, data. And um, what um, I hope to have is a series of spin-off projects where we look at um, the impact of groundwater depletion on farmers right. and for agriculture, etc. And mm. currently I have a PhD student oh, yeah. who's looking at um, using satellite data to look at human presence um, and how that's affected by the interlinking between where populations live right. and the landscape and the geomorphology. And there's some very interesting linkages there. I know I said it finally, but um, having gone from terrestrial geology to Martian geology, you, going back to what you were saying earlier about that multidisciplinary approach, you, you seem very comfortable in jumping to and from different parts of uh, uh, different aspects. Of, you're happy on Olympus Mons as you are on the Alps. <laughs> yes, I think the secret is to um, be aware of your limitations. Mm -hmm and to find the right people to work with. So you don't try and, so I go and find the experts right. on, in other areas right. and work with them. Mm -hmm. and, so, um, and so you may have a little idea that's interesting and then you go and find the experts. Right. It's not that you can do everything. Mm -hmm. That's not possible anymore. So, yeah. Professor Sanjeev Gupta, that's a fascinating conversation about how you particularly um, move about different aspects of geology, not only on Earth, but within the solar system. Thank you very much indeed. Appreciate Pleasure. It. Thank you very much.